Hi there. It's really good to be with the Journey Church family today. Are you wishing you could get that hour of sleep back? Like, somehow. Like, is there a way to reclaim it? Does a nap this afternoon? Can you roll? Yeah, something like that. It's been a heavy week in our community, hasn't it? It just, it just has been. It's been real heavy. And it just seems real appropriate that we sort of stop for a few moments. And I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads, if you would, and just go to silent prayer over our town and over the loss and the businesses and the employees and this woman who is missing and uh, speculated to be in that rubble pile and just pray. So I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and would you just talk to the Lord a bit. Lift all of that up to him and I'll close this up in a couple of moments. Father, our hearts sure go out to the folks who experience devastation and loss and even death, it would seem, this past week, God. And we know that our hearts don't go out alone, but they go out actually with your heart for people and for pain and for damage and into devastation, God. And we as a community pray that you would come in a powerful way, please, into the lives of people who, uh, in just an instant, experienced dramatic shift in everything they knew, God. Just pray that you would be God, that you would scoop them up and that you would draw them close and that you would be their refuge and their hope and their strength, please, God. Pray that you would bring comfort to the family of the woman who is missing, Father. That you would be their strength and their hope. That they would cling to you in these incredibly difficult days, God. I pray for us as a community called Journey Church, God, that uh, we wouldn't just sit idly on the sidelines, but that we would be a sent people this next week. That you would send us into the lives of the people who are most affected, however you want to send us. You have our attention, and uh, we stand by, ready for how you want to use us to be a part of the restoration and the healing and uh, the remedy, God. So send us, please. We lift our town to you. We lift our neighbors to you. We lift our whole valley to you, God. We love you, and we pray all of this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, amen. This weekend, we do launch this brand new message series that we're calling Becoming Spiritual Champions. And uh, this didn't start off as a sermon series. It originally started off as some personal reflection and reading on my part because I was concerned about my kids becoming spiritual champions. There's nothing I want more for my children than for them to become spiritual champions. Parents, you would identify, I'm sure, with that. And then as I began to press deeper and deeper into this, I, I was like, oh, oh, well, I need this for my life. I was convicted. I need to become more and more of a spiritual champion. Please, God. And so I began to look inward. And then a little further reflection, I was like, man, uh, this is incredibly appropriate for Journey Church. We need this challenge. 
And so it evolved into a sermon series that we're calling Becoming Spiritual Champions. And this whole series is undergirded, it's built on this premise that absolutely the most important, the most significant, the most vital aspect of every single person's life is his or her spiritual health and well-being. That's it. Everything in life all boils down to a person's spiritual health and well-being. Now, some people will argue that point with you. If you huck that out in conversation, look, the most important thing about a person's life is their spiritual health and well-being, you will find people who will push back considerably, right? There will be people who argue, well, no, it's the physical that's the most important, or it's the intellectual that's the most important, or it's the relational that's the most important, or it's the professional, the work world that's the most important. It's the moral development of a person that's the most important. Some people would even argue that it's the socioeconomic well-being that matters most to a person. And I'll give them that all of that other stuff is incredibly important. I'll give them that. They're very important to a person's overall health and well-being. But each and every one of those dimensions of being hinges first and foremost on a person's spiritual health and well-being. Everything else in life swings on the hinge of our souls, see? Our souls, our spiritual health, our spiritual well-being matter more than anything else. George Barna, who is a man I respect immensely, he cites some sociological research that illustrates that very point. Study and study over shows us that there is an undeniable correlation between a person's socioeconomic standing and the quality of a person's life. That means the higher your economic standing, the higher the quality of life that you have. That makes perfect sense to us, right? Money, as we all know, is crux when it comes to meeting our basic needs, which in turn enable us to survive, right? But watch this. People's response to their socioeconomic status and standing is incredibly closely tied to a person's faith. They are inextricably linked together. Many, many poor people are able to experience much greater levels of joy and fulfillment than their affluent peers, that's us, by the way, because everything in their worldview, everything in their view of life is based entirely upon the depth of their relationship with God. It isn't based upon personal achievement. It's not based upon personal comfort. Poor people never define their success or failure on the basis of their ability to accumulate stuff and things, experience adrenaline rush-inducing adventure, or gain public acclaim. They just don't do it. Instead, most economically under-resourced people realize a much greater degree of peace and joy because they correctly see this life as just the prelude to a more glorious existence with God when this life is over. Because see, this is not it. This is not it. There is much more to come. This is just the beginning, really. This physical and emotional suffering that many under-resourced poor people the globe over experience is viewed by them as secondary to the hope, to the security, to the trust they have in the love of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Their sin-bearer, their Savior, their Redeemer, their friend. They're much more affluent peers. That would include us 
who do not experience God's hand at work in their lives nearly as often will certainly more likely lead comfortable but more unsatisfying lives. See, some of us know exactly what that's like. I have seen this reality borne out time and time and time again as I've taken trips and as I've led teams to serve economically under-resourced people in mission work. The trips usually go something like this. We, uh, people like us, uh, the mission team that are going, we come up with thousands of dollars to buy plane tickets and pay for the expenses of traveling to a foreign land to serve the people there. We pack our bags, we board airplanes. Hours later, we touch down in this very foreign land Many of us step off of the plane and our first comment is, this is like a whole other world. Most people, when they step into the mission field for the first time, they say, I have never seen anything like this before. It's one of the most oft-repeated phrases in mission work. We usually board buses or vans. We ride out to some site where we will be working and serving and building and hosting vacation Bible school type programs where everyone from the team continues to be in awe of the fact, another most oft-repeated phrase, is that people actually live like this. Over and over and over again. Even on the ride from the airport to the site where we're working, we're looking around and we're saying, oh my word, people actually live like this. We roll up on the side and we stream out of the buses or the vans and we start to interact and meet the people who we came there to serve. Inevitably, it doesn't take very long at all for someone from the team to look around and say, can you believe how happy everyone here is? Pretty soon, someone else pipes up, yeah, it's staggering, really. These people, they don't have anything, yet their joy is effusive, overwhelming, overflowing. And over and over and over again, for the rest of the trip, as we debrief each evening, people say those same lines over and over again. I've never seen anything like this. I cannot believe that people live like this. Can you believe how much joy these people have? These people have absolutely nothing, but their joy is overwhelming. That comes, see, as we're face to face with people for whom the accumulation of stuff, the accumulation and accrual of status and comfort is entirely secondary to the role that their faith plays in their everyday, every moment existence. They are living on the ragged edge of faith in God, see. Where if God doesn't show up for them in that moment, in that day, maybe in that second, it's lights out for them. And they live like that every moment of every single day. And see the difference between the mission team that goes, us, and the people being served by that team is their perception of God and their role of faith in everyday life. It's a different reality for us than it is for them, see. A few weeks, last weekend as a matter of fact, if you were here, you would have seen Pastor Sam. He set up a table right about here and lined up across that table were Kleenex boxes and he was illustrating how men tend to compartmentalize their lives. I think we all do as a matter of fact. We have our work box and our family box. We have our marriage box. Remember that one was a little longer, right? We have our hobbies and so on. Most of us have a God box, don't we? 
And we pull it down off the shelf or we take it off the table and we interact with the God box for some period of time. And then we put it back on the shelf, see? And then we go pick up another box and interact with that box. But for the under-resourced the world over, God is not just a box on their shelf, not just a box on the table, not just something they sort of meddle in occasionally. For them, God is everything. Absolutely everything. For the under-resourced the world over, God most of the time is the center of a hub and spoke system. God is the hub of their life, the center of their being, and everything else extends outward. Everything else in their life, work, family, everything are the spokes. God is the hub. It's the difference between us and them for the most part. Abarna suggests we could look at that same reality through another lens. All of you know people for sure who have been through tragic accidents and came out on the other side alive, right? Somehow, though, they are left with a physical limitation, a handicap of some kind. And when people emerge on the other side of tragedy, bearing the burden of a handicap, there are always two very different reactions to such a life-altering experience. First group, Some people emerge with that great disability and they see God at work having spared them from premature death. And the people who come out on the other side of tragedy with that view, they choose to see every single day of their lives as a gift from God. They bear this sort of burden with them that every day is a gift from God. Carpe diem, they are seizing every single day because you never know when it's gonna be lights out. There's another group, however, that very quickly, because of their handicap, because of the difficulty they suffered and will suffer for the rest of their days, they quickly turn bitter because of their loss of physical wholeness. They shake their fist and criticize God for his absence in their time of greatest need. Now it's that first group that is typically composed of people who have a deep and lasting relationship with God, while those who do not most often occupy the second group. Everything else in life swings, see, on the hinge of faith. It is the most important component to our being. Because it's just true, see, that how we view God, how we view his role in our lives, determines how we handle the cards that life deals us. And for most of us living in 21st century American life, we spend the majority of our lives striving after all of the advantages that the world has to offer us, don't we? We're taught to make the most of every opportunity for the sake of our comfort, our success, our own personal material good. We're part of a culture that shouts out to us that being a champion in this world is all about the externals. That's led to a great number of us to focus solely on the externals, much to the neglect of the most important part of our being, our souls, see. To the neglect of our souls and to the neglect of what it takes to become a spiritual champion, see. What is a spiritual champion, you ask? It's a great question. I love the way that one guy sums up spiritual championship. Here's what he says. Spiritual champions are individuals who have embraced Jesus Christ as their savior and boss 
accept the Bible as their guide for life and seek to live in obedience to its principles and in search of ways to continually deepen their relationship with God. Spiritual champions live in ways that are noticeably different from the norm, norm, quote norm, even when compared to the average churchgoer. Spiritual champions are never just average churchgoers, see. I don't want you to raise your hand at all, but just think on this, you and the Lord. How many of you sitting in this room today would like that summary of a spiritual champion to be true of your life? As I reflected on that over the past several weeks, I thought there is nothing I want more in my life than that to be true of me. It actually started out with me thinking about my children. And there's nothing I want more than for, my chil- for that to be true of my children. Then me. And then it grew into all of us, this community of Christ followers called Journey Church. What if that could be true of every single one of us and our community is a whole. And as I reflected on that definition of a spiritual champion, I thought, well, that just doesn't happen, does it? We're not just going to bump into all that stuff, are we? Because see, in order to become a spiritual champion, there are actually some beliefs and there are some behaviors that must, and I mean must be rooted in our lives and in our habit patterns. And see, it's those beliefs and it's those behaviors that are going to make up the majority of this message series. I want you to know that most of the time when I start a message series like this, I know exactly the weekend it's going to end. This is unique. This is a first. I have no idea when this series is going to end. I anticipate it will be sometime less than a year from now. What does it take to become a spiritual champion? Here's just a sampling. These are actually the points, the big ideas of the upcoming messages. Spiritual champions, first of all, you can fill in the blanks on your notes page. Spiritual champions possess a worldview, a view of the world, which shapes their decision-making process, which is rooted in scriptural principles which are true and significant. Spiritual champions, number two, contend there are moral absolutes that matter to our lives and have often dramatic consequences if they are compromised. Spiritual champions believe that they have been created by God to serve him in specific ways. Spiritual champions acknowledge the continual war between God and Satan in which both of those supernatural powers can influence their choices. Spiritual champions believe that their lives should reflect the very character, the very nature of God himself. We bear the imago Dei, the image of God. We carry that and we reflect it everywhere we go. Spiritual champions donate unusually generous amounts of time and money to the church and to kingdom of God initiatives. Spiritual champions, buckle in on this one carefully screen the media they ingest. I caught myself just on Friday night. I plopped down for a movie with the family. We ordered it off of the dish, and I was like, oh, I heard this movie was kind of cute. And the whole time I'm sitting there, 84 minutes or so, I thought, what in the world are we watching? Like, what, what, what is this? You've got to be kidding. Dan and I are looking at each other like, oh, my word. She wouldn't let me shut it off, though. Just kidding. Just kidding. 
I had the remote, you know. Spiritual champions carefully screen the media that they ingest. Spiritual champions also have a deep and intense commitment to their relationship with God and other Christ followers. Spiritual champions, watch this, strive to change the world by bringing the kingdom of God in small but life-impacting ways. All in all, see, spiritual champions, they lead revolutionary lives. Their perspectives on all of life are quite uncommon. Their relationships are unique and special. Their emphasis on the centrality of their faith in God is nothing short of stunning. God matters most to spiritual champions. Now, I don't have the privilege of knowing every single one of your stories. I don't know exactly how or when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly how or when you started to follow him. Some of you I do because I've gotten to be just a little tiny part of that adventure with you. But lots of you, I don't know. But I'd be willing to put a whole pile of money on this table and bet it. Can we do that in church? Big pile of money, bet it. I'd be willing to wager a big pile of money that whenever it was that you came to faith in Jesus Christ, whenever it was that you started to follow him, whether that was in the past couple of weeks or whether that was in the past few decades, that you had this notion of becoming a spiritual champion in your heart and in your mind the day you set out on your adventure of faith with Jesus Christ. You might not have been able to verbalize it in the way that we just verbalized it there, but I'm guessing you had some image of what it would look like long-term for you to know God and follow him and live for him and serve him. I believe that every single person who ever comes to faith in Jesus Christ is setting out on that journey to live a revolutionary life, to carry with them and see things from an uncommon perspective, to be involved in incredibly unique and special relationships, to give Jesus Christ full rule and reign of their lives, to put Jesus Christ at the dead center of their existence in stunning ways. I firmly believe that every single person who ever comes to faith in Jesus Christ absolutely starts off wanting to hit it out of the park, wanting to become a spiritual champion. I also believe, with everything in me, that people who called themselves the church at a place called Laodicea, some of you might have heard of the church of Laodicea before, the church at Laodicea was in a town called Laodicea. Laodicea was like a stone's throw away from the city of Coloss. If you know the book of Colossians in the New Testament of your Bible, that was a letter written to the church at a city called Coloss. Laodicea was just a stone's throw away from the city of Coloss. I believe with everything in me, the people who called themselves the church at Laodicea started out that same way, the way I believe every single person who steps into a relationship with Jesus Christ does, wanting to become a spiritual champion, wanting to live a revolutionary life, wanting to bring the kingdom of God right here, right now, on earth, just as it is in heaven. But for the church at Laodicea and for a whole bunch of us walking the planet today, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, something happens, doesn't it, on the way to becoming spiritual champions. Something happens. And that something that happens is not good. As a matter of fact, you might call it bad. 
And for the church at Laodicea, it was so bad that Jesus had quite harsh words for them. This from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 15 to 19. These might be familiar words to some of you. Jesus says this to the church at Laodicea. I know all the things you do. Heck of a way to start a conversation. I know all the things you do. That you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, Jesus says. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So Jesus said, I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire, then you will be rich. There's several sermons in this text. We're sort of skipping off the top of it a bit. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness, an ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. And Jesus says, I correct and I discipline everyone I love. I correct and I discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Something happened to the people who made up the church at Laodicea on their way to becoming spiritual champions. Just like for a whole bunch of us, something happens to us on our way to becoming spiritual champions. I believe we all start in that place of wanting to become a spiritual champion, but something happens. And for the church at Laodicea, Jesus was not at all happy with how that was going. Becoming spiritual champions was not their aim anymore. They forgot that's who they started out to become, see. And I'd be willing to pile up another pile of money and slide it across the table and wager that when the church at Laodicea got started, it was a little cozy group of people whose dream it was to be used by God to reach the people of their community with the gospel of Jesus Christ and drape a serving towel over their arm to serve those very same people. God, see, had gotten a hold of their hearts. They would never be the same. They woke up one day and they realized that there were poor people all around them who could be greatly helped by them. They woke up one day and realized there were children of all ages around them who needed to hear about God and his unconditional love for them. They woke up one day and realized there were people who were living all of their days like a million miles away from God who needed to be served and reached and prayed for and invited into the church and invited into a relationship with the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Over time, though, a really bad thing happened. Something that a pastor friend of mine calls spiritual gravity. Spiritual gravity, you might write that down. Spiritual gravity happened. And pretty soon, that dream of becoming spiritual champions, that dream of becoming a revolutionary kind of community that actually makes a difference in the world, on earth, just as it is in heaven, that dream quickly died out. Because, see, spiritual gravity sets in and spiritual gravity takes over. And it doesn't take very long at all for the focus to shift from the question, how is God inviting us to partner with him in this town, in this state, in this region, in this country, and around this world? And the question instead turns to much more internal, self-focused things. Things like, why do we sing that song? I don't like that song. 
Or how about this question? Why don't you tuck in your shirt? You look like a slob. You think I'm kidding. Spiritual gravity, see, trips people up who were formerly focused entirely upon becoming spiritual champions and causes them to go from living as servants to merely being consumers, spiritual consumers. I'll take a little of this, I'll take a little of that, I'll take a little, ooh, that's a little uncomfortable, don't want that, not going there, leave that there. From servants to spiritual consumers. But get this, I don't believe for a single moment that there was a single person in the city of Laodicea who when they set out on their faith journey with Jesus Christ were determined to live their spiritual lives and live at a spiritual temperature that would be equated with something that would be spit and vomited out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. Nobody started out their relationship with Jesus Christ saying, I want to be equated with puke one day, right? Nobody starts in that place. Oh, what fun that will be. Never. I'm convinced quite the opposite. That those people set out on their journey of faith with Jesus Christ, determined to be dramatically changed by him, and then to bring dramatic change into their community and into their world. They set out to become spiritual champions, but spiritual gravity set in. And they forgot all about who it was that they had set out to become, who it was they had set out to be. What's spiritual gravity, you ask? Well, it's this. It's the principle that is constantly at play that says when we leave our souls, when we leave our spiritual care, when we leave our spiritual nurture, our spiritual growth all to itself, it will never get better. It will never increase in temperature. Instead, it will only decrease. It will only deteriorate because everything left to itself has a tendency to unwind, to deteriorate. When we neglect giving attention and energy to the proper feed and caring of our souls, they will get worse, not better. It's just the way it works. Anytime, anytime we become apathetic or complacent, anytime we settle for the path of least resistance, when it comes to our journey to becoming a spiritual champion, spiritual gravity just creeps in. And those once fond dreams of becoming spiritual champions wither and die on the vine oftentimes before we even realize it's happening. But you know what that really means? That spiritual gravity is one of the single greatest enemies to us becoming spiritual champions. Now some of us will kind of jump up and down and go, well, wait a minute, I thought it was Satan who is the great enemy of us becoming spiritual champions, and you'd be right, but here's the deal. A lot of the time, spiritual gravity does Satan's work for him. He doesn't even have to mess with us. Because spiritual gravity is just creeping in, creeping in, creeping in. We're letting it happen. And Satan can just sort of sit on the sidelines with his arms crossed and go, I like that. If you just stay in that place right there, I'll just lean right over here and I won't even have to mess with you. The book of Proverbs, in quite a dramatic way, paints a picture for us of the real and lasting cost that spiritual gravity bears upon our soul bears upon our quest to become spiritual champions. Look at Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 34. This is from the NIV. Here's what the author writes. 
I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of the man who lacks judgment. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and I learned a lesson from what I saw. That's what we're going to attempt to do for the rest of our time together, to learn a lesson from what we see in this proverb. I want to show you this picture right here. Isn't that spectacular? That is the picture of a French vineyard. And on a day like this, I'll bet you that you'd rather be there than here. Right? So we're all going to go together right after the service, and we're going to go to that place. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, look at that blue sky, and look at those grapevines. I, I just want to go there, frankly. I hope that's all right with you. It is stunning, really. And what absolutely jumps off the screen to me, as I look at that photograph of this stunning French vineyard, is the amount of energy and the amount of work that goes into keeping that vineyard productive and looking that good. You could eat off the ground in that vineyard, couldn't you? It is amazing how well kept it is. But here's what I want you to know. That did not just happen. Whoever owns that vineyard didn't just sit in his rocking chair and say, man, if it could just look like that, that'd be sweet. And then it just, there it was. Uh-uh. You would be amazed at the amount of time and energy and labor that goes into keeping that vineyard looking like that. It's beautiful, isn't it? But Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 34, paints a picture and tells a story about a vineyard that is the precise opposite of this vineyard, doesn't it? Look at what the writer says. I went past the field of a sluggard, Past the vineyard of the man who lacks judgment, thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds. The stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. And I got to thinking about this proverb this week, and I was like, why does the author of this proverb care so much about some other guy's vineyard? What's the big deal? I mean, like, it's a free country, right? If you want to have a vineyard that's in shambles, you can do anything you want with your land. You can, right, have at it. If you want to have a mess, have a mess. But when I did a little reading, I found out the reason why the author of this proverb is so exercised about this. Because see, in the ancient Middle East, a piece of land that was capable of growing crops, it was one of the most valuable things in the entire world. Its value was almost immeasurable. And to get the privilege, take it up another notch, to get the privilege of owning a productive vineyard was a blessing beyond all compare, a blessing beyond all measure. The story, though, of Proverbs 24, verses 30 to 34, paints the picture and illustrates for us exactly what spiritual gravity looks like. Every single one of you sitting in this room today you all got a vineyard. We all have a vineyard. You, me, every person walking planet Earth has a vineyard. It was given to you by none other than God himself, see? And your vineyard is your soul. And your soul is the most important part of your being. It is the most important part of who you are. And God gives us one shot, just one life, to make the most 
to squeeze everything we can out of the vineyard of our soul that he bestowed upon us. We get just one go around the track of life to become spiritual champions. No do-overs in this game. No do-overs. And some of us think on stuff like that, right? And we're like, wow, that's pretty weighty. That's heavy. It sounds like this caring for the vineyard of my soul thing, that's like a lot of pressure, right? I'm not sure that I'm exactly up to the challenge, but get this, you do not give energy to the vineyard of your soul on your own. It's not up to you by yourself. God joins with you in that work, see? God partners with us on the journey to becoming spiritual champions. We are never working alone. This is not a message series about me going, now go home and just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do this, do this, do this. It's you and God partnering together to become spiritual champions, see? And what I want you to hear is while God very willingly partners with us on that journey to become spiritual champions, he never forces anybody to take action to make the most of their vineyard. He invites and he invites and he invites, but he never forces. He never breaks down doors charging in, saying you must, you must, you must, you must. He invites and he invites and he invites. And it's almost, if you listen real closely, it's almost as if you can hear the writer of this proverb saying, I was walking past a vineyard and I thought about all that it could have been. I thought about all that it could have been. It could have been a championship vineyard. But instead the author of the proverb said, "Uh uh-uh, not this one. Not this one. Instead, this one has fallen woefully short of everything it could have been. Lots of our souls are in that very same condition, aren't they? Falling woefully short of everything that they could have been. And we ask the question of the vineyard in the proverb, why? We ask the question of the vineyard of our souls, why, what happened? What led to a vineyard that was in such a sad state? Was there some catastrophe, a drought, a flood, a fire, some other terrible natural disaster? And the answer is no, there wasn't. This broken down, run down, overgrown vineyard in Proverbs 24 was that way for the same reason a lot of our souls are that way because of this terrible and insidious thing called spiritual gravity, see? Because of just plain old negligence by the vineyard's owner. The vineyard owner in the proverb might have started out years ago with this picture in heart and mind. Oh, what could be someday if that could be my vineyard, that would be spectacular. He may have even realized this goal for a short period of time. He may have achieved spiritual champion status for a season or two, but then through nothing other than sheer neglect, the insidious power of spiritual gravity crept in and took over, and pretty soon thorns had come up. Pretty soon the ground was overgrown with weeds. Pretty soon the stone wall that surrounded the vineyard was in ruins. Maybe lots of us sitting in this room today find our soul in that exact same place, looking just like the vineyard in Proverbs 24. And this series, Becoming a Spiritual Champion, Becoming Spiritual Champions, 
is all about us as a community and individually forging beliefs and forging behaviors that are the antithesis of the neglect and decay of spiritual gravity. They are the antidote to spiritual gravity, see. And here's what I know. I know that as we sit in this room today, that we stand on the cusp of springtime. Now, I know looking outside, you would find that difficult to believe. But just think back to yesterday afternoon, right? Whoa, the warm rays of the sun, wasn't that something? Whoa, spring is like just around the corner. And here's what I know with springtime, and here's what I know with warmer days, come a whole lot of other things that vie for our time and vie for our attention, right? And it gets real easy in the, lazy days of summer, the lazy days of spring, for spiritual gravity just to creep in, for the weeds to grow up, for the thorns to take over, for the wall to just sort of come crumbling down. But the challenge to us today is this. There is nothing more important than the development of your soul. Nothing matters more. Everything else in your life swings on the hinge of your soul. And so I'm going to ask and I'm going to invite and I'm going to challenge you to pay attention. Pay great attention. Give yourself to the adventure of becoming a spiritual champion. This is not a game we're playing. The stakes, you see, are immensely high. Nothing matters more. I hope you'll give yourself entirely to the adventure of becoming a spiritual champion. You will never regret it. You will never regret it. Why don't you take your stuff and set it aside, please, and I just invite you to go to prayer. Just invite you to speak to the Lord about what it is that you're thinking about. Tell God what's on your heart and your mind. You can do that now. ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you would for the next few moments just give this time to the Lord and I'm going to speak into it just a little bit I'm going to ask for a moment of transparency if I could I want you to know that nobody's looking around except me but by show of hands how many of you sitting in this room today want to become spiritual champions just raise your hand so yeah, I want to become, yeah, oh, there's hands all over the room, way to go. You can put those down, way to go. That's spectacular. If you just raised your hand, would you just spend some time talking to the Lord about doing whatever it takes to continue to become a spiritual champion? Just tell him that you're serious about this. Just tell him that you mean business with this. Just make it clear that you're listening into him. Make it clear that he's got your attention. Make it real clear with him that you're committed to do whatever it is he asks you to do. And then do not raise your hand on this one, please. This is just between you and the Lord. How many of you sitting in this room here today would say that through nothing more than sheer neglect, 
that the vineyard of your soul looks just like that Proverbs 24 vineyard, overgrown, overrun, broken down. Would that be you? And if that is you, I invite and I challenge you, just acknowledge that to the Lord. Just acknowledge it. Just let him know that you're keenly aware of the state of the vineyard of your soul. And then only do this, please, if you mean business. Don't do this. Don't say this. Don't declare this if you don't absolutely mean business. But if you're serious about wanting to overcome the forces of spiritual gravity that have led to your soul being in that state, just tell God that. Just say, God, I mean business on this deal. I'm tired of spiritual gravity overwhelming my soul. And tell him that you're dead serious about wanting to prune back the thorns and pull up the weeds and rebuild the wall that's in ruins in the vineyard of your soul. Declare to God that you're serious about doing whatever it takes to become a spiritual champion. And maybe you're here today and this is all brand new to you. And maybe today God is showing you that you've never really trusted him with your soul. That you've never stepped into a relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ and allowed him to come alongside and partner with you toward becoming a spiritual champion. God wants you to know today that that's his invitation. That's what he's inviting you to do today. And you can do that by receiving God's gift of his son Jesus Christ. The one who came to live, the one who came to die, to take the penalty of your sin upon himself. And when you receive Christ into your life, you are never the same. In an instant, you are forgiven. In an instant, you are adopted. In an instant, you are invited to spend eternity with God, starting right here, right? It isn't just about heaven, see? It's about a relationship with God that starts right here and right now and extends for all of eternity. And if that's you, if that represents the desire of your heart today, you can step into a relationship with God right now. You can do that by praying along with me a prayer that goes just like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus Christ to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have, but today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that my sin has separated me from you. This isn't anything you did, God. This is me. And God, with everything in me, I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin. And I ask you to please forgive me and would you please come live inside of me. Starting today and going forward, I want you to be my friend, God. Starting today and going forward, I want you to change me. Starting today and going forward, God, I need you to clean up my life and please help me become a spiritual champion. And if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, you just stepped into the most significant relationship of your whole life. Nothing matters more, see? 
Nothing carries more weight. And it's such a big deal that around here we ask people to tell us when they made that decision, and I'm going to invite you to do that with me right now. I want you to know that nobody's looking around except me. Nobody's going to embarrass you in any way. I just want to acknowledge your choice today. If you prayed with me then, would you slip your hand up and would you make eye contact with me and just say, yes, I did it. Yeah, buddy, way to go. And you two right there, and you both of you right there, all three of you right there, way to go. You in the back as well. And you too, sir, right there. Right now, God's changing you and he's making you new. You will never be the same. Just make sure I catch your eye. I don't want to miss anybody. Yeah, right there. Way to go. And right there. God's changing you right now. God, we want to give ourselves entirely to overcoming this thing called spiritual gravity. We want to give ourselves entirely to becoming spiritual champions. God, we recognize that you didn't just send your son Jesus to die so that we could become average churchgoers for all of our days. The cost was far too high for that to be the case. Instead, God, you sent your son Jesus Christ to give us a revolutionary existence with you in eternity, absolutely, but also starting right here and right now. May we be about that revolutionary existence, God. May we be all about you being the central focus of our being, not just a box on the shelf, not just something we do, not just something we sort of meddle in, but something that we entirely yield and give ourselves to, God. We're yours and we want to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. Thanks for the strength you give us and for the courage you give us to fight the battle, to become spiritual champions. I pray, God, that you would bless us on this journey. We love you. This is all for you and about you and because of you. And the church said, amen.